0: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset Team.
2: And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the Markets team.
1: This week on the show, we're going abroad. The Brexit saga continues and civil unrest is growing across countries and continents. What does that mean for markets? We'll also talk credit and we'll discuss whether or not some cracks are actually starting to emerge.
2: And of course, speaking of cracks, we'll talk about the craziest things we saw in markets this week. I see what you did there. You see what I did there? That was good. Okay. I'm glad someone saw it. (laughs) But, Sarah, as you said, uh, we're going to take a look abroad for much of uh, today's program. I also do want to get sort of a a temperature check on the U.S. stock market. And luckily for us, our first guest is a guy who can speak with authority on all of these uh, subjects (laughs) uh, as a expatriate uh, Brit, as a... Uh, expert of Lat-Am markets uh, from spending some time in uh, Mexico City for the Financial Times. The only thing missing this week is a Red Sox uh, appearance in the World Series to make him (laughs) the absolutely perfect guest for this week. And I hate to rub that in. But John authors, welcome to the show.
3: We can live with it. It's a, it, it, we're not like Yankee fans who needs you know, who needs the a, a championship every year <laughs> gonna, to justify their existence. So I'm very happy to live in the uh, the uh, aura of last year. Yeah. That's fine uh, by me.
2: As a Phillies fan, I'll take once a, one a century. Once a
3: century, <laughs> yeah. okay. Right. That
1: was John's way of rubbing the rough Yankees loss. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And you so, caught what I did there. <laughs>
2: she catches everything. You can't get anything past <laughs> her. Also joining us this week. Now, Sarah, let me introduce this guest by saying I'm thinking back to 2016. There was a lot of concern about the so-called turn in the credit cycle. And as a guy who's covered stock markets for way too long, I can tell you stock market people get very nervous when they hear about a potential turn in the credit market. I think the thinking is that fixed income investors are a little bit smarter than your average stock trader. (laughs) They see things coming down the pike. But anyway, Lisa Bramowitz and I at the time wrote a, a column for what was Gadfly then. It's now part of Bloomberg Opinion. But we made the quip in the beginning that uh, maybe we'll both be in retirement homes when this credit cycle finally turns. I gotta say, it might be time to call the retirement home. Get me some some slacks with the elastic waistband. And uh, I don't know, a nice easy boy because I read something today. You're making
1: everyone nervous. I'm making
2: them (laughs) nervous. It's drama. I read something this week that makes me once again wonder is the credit cycle turning? Dun, dun, dun. But to help us get through that, we're happy to have a first timer on the show, uh, a longtime listener, I hope, Molly Smith (laughs) from the credit team. Welcome to What Goes Up.
4: Don't get those pants just yet. You're good. Oh, <laughs> that's... The credit cycle, as uh, you know, those baseball fans out there want to say, is uh, in its ninth, tenth, whatever inning we're talking about. So uh, we're, we're just going to keep on rolling. This is, this is
3: DiMaggio's streak, is it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. But, John,
4: before we
3: go mm.
2: abroad, I do want to start with you and yes. just sort of get your sort of 30,000-foot view of <laughs> the U.S. stock market right now. I know you were a little bearish uh this year based on valuations yeah. uh but I, I feel like you're sort of coming around to the bull case <laughs> a little bit. Uh, walk us through how you're looking that's, at this. That's,
3: that's that's questionable. I have <laughs> been I've uh, been I've been too, I've been too- Incorrectly bearish for too long on UK U.S. stocks to uh, to capitulate totally, because I know that if I truly capitulate, that will be the moment <laughs> when we make the peak. You know, th- this is something that all market reporters sort of it's sort of the prayer that you start to day: Lord, do not make me into a contrarian indicator. <laughs> so, um, no, I can I continue to think that in the in the very long term, if you're talking about the, the kind of uh, uh, people who read us who are most interested in long term asset allocation. It's very, very hard to be excited about U.S. stocks because any sensible measurement, they are historically expensive. And the only reason they look like a decent buy is that they are relatively cheap compared to bonds and credit. Yeah. So um, that continues to be the case. Uh, what I think it probably is fair to suggest uh, is that there is just so much negativity so many genuinely really good reasons uh excuses but also reasons to get the heck out of the stock market and instead we are still very close to this sort of invisible invisible lid of about three thousand on the s&p that that does suggest that once a few good pieces of news came in short term that's got to be a good reason to to, to think that the pain trade will be particularly for people like me who've been telling me to get out <laughs> yeah. of the stock market that the paint trade will be will be up on the stock market. So tactically no, I don't think there is good reason with what we know now to be hugely uh, hugely bearish. Long term, if you've got a choice between uh, if you've got a choice between haven assets or if you've got a choice of uh, other equity markets around the world in which to invest for the next 10 years or longer, I'm still bearish about the US stock market
1: John one investor over at UBS said something to me that really mm. struck me this week mm. and he said the pain trade won't just be stocks going up the pain trade will be a potential rotation and we've been hearing about this now yes. for a couple of weeks and we've started to see some strong performance in the likes of banks and the like of yes. likes of energy shares do you get the sense that this is something that will actually be sticky and we might actually see this take over or is, is it still just way too soon to tell?
3: It's, it's well, it's it's too soon to say, but but we did have about a month or so ago now, we had the Quant Apocalypse, or whatever you want to call it when mm-hmm. momentum, the momentum strategy, the momentum factor really did have quite a severe crash. That's the whole point of momentum. It works most of the time and very occasionally really crashes. Um, but the fact that that happened is an indicative that something may be ready there for the turn. Um, value stocks, is another one of those things I consider myself a value guy. Uh, The number of times it's looked as though value is ready to turn and take over again in the last decade is uh, enough to make a grown man weep. Um, It's like waiting for Godot. (laughs) I I would, I mean, every. I suppose it's fair to say that with the passing of time, um, we must be getting closer to a point of value outperformance. I guess that's fair to say.
2: And when you think about it, um, there's a school of thought, and I admit I'm, I might be the only pupil in the school of thought, but that mm-hmm. stock market corrections can occur on both axes of the graph, you know, not just price, but time. And if yeah. the market is basically not that far above where it was in January of 2018.
3: That's a very, very good point. And I think that it, it should be made more often that basically uh, you you can make a very good case for for the volpocalypse, I think that I think that was the volpocalypse, rather than <laughs> the quantpocalypse, uh, at the beginning of February of last year really was something of a turning point. We had a brief melt-up after the tax reform, and in many ways, depending on how you measure it, nothing has happened since then. You can also make an argument if you're looking at bonds versus stocks, the, you know, the, the, the classic asset allocator way of looking at it sort of last fall uh when you know if you if you remember we were all worried about yields going
1: up right, at right. One point long way we've come <laughs> yes
3: and and so there was there's, there's another turning point that has not been returned to when you look at stocks relative to bonds later last year so you I I do agree with you 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 corrections don't have to be violent and over the passing of time you could say we are in a correcting phase yes
2: all right so Molly I let's switch over to you I gotta say, I was kind of looking forward to to shopping for retirement homes. I, 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 I I'm felt, so sorry felt like to my disappoint. time had come, and the elastic waistband pants.
4: You can still wear them.
1: We're <laughs> right, gonna check out
4: right. Got a, a couple years. Code here,
1: <laughs> He's gonna have some suspenders <laughs> you're <kind> on. Of, <laughs> <laughs> you're breaking
2: my my hopes and dreams here. My dad used to do, uh at rest in peace, Joe Regan, My dad used to do the sweatpants with suspenders. That is the power That's look for a retiree. Look. That's what I aspire. That's the for. one
3: I, exactly. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <one. Yeah. laughs>
2: But let me just read something that came out from uh, your colleagues on the credit team this week. And the headline, it's beginning to look a lot like 2009. But let me read the lead. Investors, beware. Key indicators of a turn in the credit cycle are starting to emerge, reaching levels not seen since the last recession. Upgrades of U.S. companies in high-yield markets are trailing downgrades by the most since 2009, uh, according to S&P Global Ratings. So it's focusing on the uh, upgrade to downgrade ratio. Um, Molly, obviously yield spreads are still not screaming uh, anything, any alarm bells um, to the market at all. But what's your sort of overview from sort of the macro perspective of of the credit markets right now?
4: Yeah, I think when you want to talk about it from a macro perspective that the more leading indicator would be what are yields telling you? What are spreads telling you? What are market participants who are investing in these products that would then give you these yields and spreads? What are they telling you? Um, And that's not a diss at all to the rating agencies, but they're not putting any of the money into the markets right now. So it's a bit bit harder to gauge the pulse from that audience uh, alone. So when we're looking at just talking about how does credit feel right now, is this 2009, is the cycle turning? It's really hard to say that right now. Credit is having a remarkable year in both investment grade and high yield on the corporate bond side. We're up double digits in both asset classes and if you've held either of those from the beginning of the year, you've I mean, you really haven't had to touch either. You've made a remarkable return from just holding the index in either one. Obviously, there are different exceptions to that like when you look at leverage loans. That's been a sore spot this year. Obviously, a big part of that stemming from when the Fed has obvi- has reversed course from the end of last year going from hiking rates to now in a cutting cycle or the, or a, a pause at least and as Jay Powell would describe it. So it's definitely hard to say that this is the turn right now when a lot of deals are getting done issuance is still strong and the flows are looking strong too. So people are still buying these products.
1: Like you said double digit gains in IG, double digit gains in high yield we've seen double-digit gains in stocks if you only use the year-to-date period. However, we are at a point now where investors seem to be getting testy. For a lot of the credit investors that you speak with, do they seem to be as nervous or jittery, or are they still feeling pretty good? It would definitely feel like they f-
4: are are definitely feeling pretty good, especially because of when you look at primary market performance, which is the most recent indicator of what the pulse would be telling you. That's the most accurate Uh, price gauge out there for where assets should be trading at. And we're looking at really, really strong performance across the board and that deals are getting done in both investment grade and high yield. Granted, in high yield, these are mostly higher quality names. So we haven't seen a ton of issuance from that triple C bucket, the lowest ratings tier. But even triple Cs right now are having the best run they've had in a year performance-wise. And that is hard to rationalize that against what maybe feels like 2009 from a Raiders perspective.
2: Is part of it just this giant ball of money? I think that's how Tracy Allaway would call it, the giant <laughs> ball of money that's got to roll somewhere. And I, and it makes me bring up a, another piece you wrote this week, uh, uh, the headline being, With Little Yield in Sight, Bond Buyers Turn to Illiquid Debt. And it's ba- basically talking about how in investment grade, um, there is a demand for bonds that don't trade very, os- very often, Uh, highly illiquid, and how big of a risk is that? I mean, I'm I'm thinking if, if the payments are coming in, if the coupons are being paid... How much do I have to worry about liquidity in in as a credit investor?
4: If that's all you want, then you don't have to worry, yeah. and there are plenty of buyers out there that that is their mandate. That's the pension funds and the insurance companies of the world that they're the typical buy and hold community, Copound clipping, not looking to get any kind of price appreciation. And these are very high dollar price bonds, one like trade that around like the one twenty to one forty range on cents on the dollars. So if you're looking to buy at that range in the one forty to one sixty area there's not going to be a whole lot of capital appreciation, right? Because at the end of the day, you're getting paid back at 100 cents on the dollar. So clearly, this is not where you're going to get the big gains of the bond market. And that's where it really becomes like an individual credit picker's market. But yeah, if you just want to buy and hold, go for that all day long. It's a great strategy.
1: Molly, (laughs) you also get very involved with the earnings season. And I feel like on this show, whenever we talk about earnings, we always think about the stock side. But you've been very involved in the coverage of Tesla, which did... Post, a surprise profit uh, gain for the last quarter. Also Ford, which lowered its full year forecast. What have really been the standouts? And from the credit side, what have you learned?
4: Yeah. So those were the big ones, especially auto earnings uh, this week that it's uh, I, I think we focus on Tesla a lot for pretty obvious reasons. Right. It's a pretty flashy company in every sense of the word has a pretty flashy guy running it. So when the, the thing is that from a bond perspective, it's I feel like you're getting increasingly less of a credit story. It's Tesla is not at all, like, a massive name in the high-yield index, and it's hardly a bellwether of where to sense, like, how high, how people feel about the high-yield market. Um But gr- granted, even saying all that, like, looking at Tesla specifically, this really is a great sign for the company. And that this is uh, to see that they're posting now more po- quarters of positive free cash flow. We're wondering when are they going to finally get to being sustainably profitable I hold my breath in saying we could be there because certainly we felt this way a year ago, and that didn't turn out to be the case. But it's looking better this time around. And for Ford, unfortunately, um, this is where you might say to start to say, "Is this 2005 all over again?" When the automakers preceded the ultimate the financial crisis in a few years later. So with Ford, it's a very different story, and GM could tell you the same thing that the growth overseas is certainly challenging. And I'm sure we talk about this on the show all the time about the macro challenges in China and Europe and those markets. And it's not the best time to be buying a car right now. And that's where Ford is struggling, has been going on this multi-year restructuring plan and is increasingly looking like they're going to get another downgrade.
2: Don't cancel my sweatpants order just yet, John.
4: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes. Todd, let's mm. let's do a tour of the world here because yes. I, I really wanted to talk about Chile. Uh, you know, obviously we came in on Monday to these alarming headlines, I guess if you were paying attention over the weekend, yes. <laughs> unlike me, you saw the, uh, the news over the weekend about these alarming protests in Ch- Chile really turning violent, uh, several deaths. I, I don't know yes. what the count is now, but um, a lot of it being uh, pinned on, uh, of all things, the increase of a subway fare. Yes. Um and your headline uh really stuck with me. You wrote, uh, "The Chile unrest has a worrisome message for the rest of the world." And then uh, in your column you write, "If it can happen in Santiago, it can happen anywhere." Yes. So walk us through, uh, you know, how alarming should we be? And yeah. you know, uh, one thing to, to look at this from yes. the, a sociologist's perspective, but. Uh, obviously, our audience is a, a market's perspective. So, yes. so how worried should investors uh, be about this type of thing? Okay, up?
3: I, I mean, if, first of all, if you're an investor, it's increasingly the sociological things that are beginning to worry you. It's mm-hmm. uh, is civil order going to break down in some countries, and that even includes my own home country, which listeners can probably guess is Britain, um, where where things are getting very alarming indeed, as the country still can't work out how to how to resolve Brexit. Now, in the case of Chile. Uh, it is by an order of magnitude traditionally the calmest stablest country in the region. It did have a very unpleasant dictatorship for a while. that was a stable dictatorship. It did have the longest continuous democracy before uh, Pinochet took over and it has had a stable democracy without pause since he, uh, Pinochet fell peacefully. So it is the stablest country in the region. It is by any sensible measure the wealthiest country in the region. And one of the the critical points, which is why this is alarming for a lot of the the markets-type, capitalist-type people that we talk to at Bloomberg, is that it's the country in Latin America which has done things exactly the way your average um, markets person, your average Washington, D.C. policy wonk, would think they had to do them. Uh, Under Pinochet, uh, you did have, uh, they're known as the Chicago Boys, a group of Uh, People largely trained under Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago established um, a way for Chile to work. And that plainly does have a lot to do with why Chile has performed better than most of the rest of the the region for a long time. The pension programme that they basically, uh, many people would say, a better version of the 401k, a better thought through version of the 401k, which they established in the late 70s or early 80s. uh, And that's one of the biggest things that people are now protesting about, that, that we're, we're having the first wave of people who've really been on one of these pension plans throughout their working lives. Uh, and I've had plenty of emails from Chileans, $200 a month pensions wow. uh, for people who've worked as engineers for 35, 40 years. What is also very interesting, just just sort of the, the other final point, which is which is concerning, is that, yes, it's transport fares, which were aimed at making it, uh, helping ease the transition away from carbon fuels. And also there's a fuel uh, price increase, a general electricity price increase. All over the world, that tends to be the catalyst when people are angry, including the gilets jaunes in in France, to make it clear that this isn't just a a Latin American story. You've got to be very careful indeed when you make people pay more for fuel, for energy, for transport.
1: You had a follow-up column as well, and the title was The Big Issue Confronting the Stock Market. And you mentioned Chile, you mentioned yes. Spain, Brexit. And yes. really what it comes down to is what you say is inequality is for companies too. And you yes. talk about moats that companies build around themselves competition-wise, where mm. they can keep building themselves up to be larger yes. and larger.
3: Yes.
1: How does this actually affect the process of investing and thinking about markets?
3: Well, the, the moats phrase is a beautifully folksy phrase that comes from warren buffett himself he looks for companies with a wide economic moat and coming from warren buffett who manages to make being a plutocratic billionaire so charming and folksy in <laughs> midwestern uh it sounds really cool but when you think about it actually when you when you say you're building an economic motor around your company what you mean is you're Ruthlessly exploiting uh, its whatever monopoly power it has and in, entrenching it in a way that you can rip off people for more than you otherwise would be able to rip them off. Um, and uh, <laughs> that has been a process that has been rewarded. This comes back to the long term bear case for the US stock market. Uh, if you look at um, the price to book multiples that people will pay uh, on the biggest five companies in each sector compared to the rest. Of the markets, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like double. Um, and if you look at the um uh, profitability of the biggest companies compared to all the rest, again, it's quite startling the big get bigger, get more profitable, uh, and the rest are left uh nowhere or very you know, with very little to do. The other interesting thing, which might come back to some of the points that that Molly was making, there there is an interesting debate whether this is about exploiting monopoly power, or whether it's about exploiting the ability to leverage yourself up seriously to the hilt, mm-hmm. um, because the leverage uh, by all the sensible measures, debt to EBITDA or whatever, uh, is of the biggest companies in each sector is again off the top of my head, of an order of double the typical leverage for everybody else, that wow. um, the leverage we're seeing in the economy is largely these huge, well-protected companies. And that then leads to policy question, which you don't need to be Elizabeth Warren to think there might be a very good case for splitting some of these companies up. But does that then begin to become the moment when actually the amount of credit we've extended gets very nervous because I- we've extended them to these... Companies that we've allowed to get so big, they rip us off. And once we no longer let them rip us off, they might also not be able to repay their debt.
4: But we're still extending to them, so it seems that like that that we haven't reached. So maybe we'd better (laughs)
3: let them keep ripping us off, or otherwise keep
4: on doing it. Yeah, sure. Let's keep giving them money. It's so cheap. Why not? Everybody's so happy. (laughs) I mean, exactly what Mike had said before. Hmm. There's just this giant pile of money. Where is it going to go? And you have. I'm sure we hammer ever we hammer this all the time. It's the negative yields in Europe and in mm. Asia, and where else are you going to park your money and expect to generate some sort of a reliable return? And right now, that's U.S. fixed income, and particularly credit that is that is really proving to be that place.
2: Molly said the magic word, which allows us to transition into the craziest things we've ever seen this week. She said it: fixed income, and we got a call into the Bloomberg What Goes Up podcast hotline. From our own Felice Morans uh, with a very interesting, craziest thing regarding fixed income. Let's give a listen.
0: Almost nobody knows what fixed income is. That's according to a Bank of New York Mellon survey of about 2,000 people. It turns out that only 8% of those people could define the term fixed income. It's even crazier if you think about a broader group of people, say people who were unwilling to fill out an online survey about investing. Maybe the percentage of people who know what fixed income is is actually a lot lower.
2: My only question: I wonder if the people who answered fixed income is an investment that pays you a positive yield if they were ruled in- incorrect. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's
1: <laughs> maybe that explains <laughs> the this people survey. people were really <laughs> just confused. <if laughs> when they're truly positive, Elise had
4: sent me this survey and. You know, it kind of honestly, I'm embarrassed to say this now that I am a fixed income reporter and I took a fixed income class in college and left that class not really knowing what fixed income was. But, that's a really, like, that's hard on, on the part of the teacher it, then. I, the, the guy actually was um, a Moody's officer during the financial crisis. So maybe that's has something to do with it. But um, I, I have thankfully learned since what fixed income is. Good and, to know.
1: Yeah. Feels good to know what it is. And as a reminder, if you want to call in and let us know the craziest things that you guys have seen in markets or ask us any questions, let us know. What you're up to, what you're thinking about markets, feel free to give us a call. That number is 646-324-3490. And we may even play your message on the show.
2: All right, I guess I'll I'll try to top that. I don't know if I can top that. That's pretty good. Uh but on Thursday, the so many people in the markets suddenly became fixated on a speech by Vice President Mike Pence about China because there there was concerns that he would say something offensive and, and blow up the whole trade discussion. Um, so my craziest thing of the week is that people in markets actually paid attention to a speech by the vice president, any <laughs> vice president. John, do you ever remember traders watching a speech by a vice president? No. <laughs> the
1: last time Mike Pence gave a speech.
2: Oh, yeah? Okay. What was right. that when was that one?
1: Or he was supposed to give a speech and it was highly critical of China. Where
2: He was supposed to. That, yeah, he, it got canceled. Okay. And then it postponed to this. So same speech. That was the market
3: paying attention to the vice president not giving a speech, which really right, right. is. <laughs> really, that's even crazier. That's even crazier. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I got one. Okay. So uh, speaking after uh, the Tesla earnings this week, I was looking to a convertible bomb maturity they have due next week. And in the past, this has been, uh, I don't want to say one of the highlights of my year, but certainly something that we look <laughs> forward to to see, like, will Tesla be able to make this? It's always a question. <laughs> There's always a bit of skepticism leading up to these. And. I looked at it this week and I'm like, man, like they've got a record amount of cash on the balance sheet. I almost started to write the headline, Tesla's convertible bond, a drop in the bucket compared to record cash pile. Wow. <laughs> I never wow. thought I'd see myself write that. It, Tesla? It, it didn't make it to the print, but I thought it. <laughs> I definitely thought it for a minute there.
1: That is pretty crazy.
3: Sorry, Elon.
4: Yes. <laughs> it's, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Okay, John. How about you? You have a Mattis thing of the week. for Okay, Mattis. Mattis. Yes. I guess the best example I can I have for you, coming on from the uh, the discussion of the big getting bigger, is that uh, this is a factoid uh, that I found out from Bespoke Investments. If you take what you might call the Nasdaq two, uh, the eternal rivals Microsoft and Apple, their market, their combined market cap is now virtually identical to the market cap of the entire Russell 2000.
1: It's unbelievable.
3: So just these two companies are now basically the same size as what most investors take to be the entire small cap sector in this country.
2: Well, that is amazing. And that sort of brings to mind your point about uh, antitrust. I, I don't think that's an issue that's going to go Does, on.
3: It's, it's, well, antitrust, the fascinating thing is that it's one of these issues which unites people at the ends of politics. Right. Against the middle. It's a perfectly respectable left wing Elizabeth Warren or right wing libertarian argument for really aggressive antitrust. And I think it probably will happen at some point. And a lot depends on whether it's actually done well. All right. Sarah, how about you?
1: All right. So. What I have today isn't so crazy, but I think some people will find it pretty surprising just because when we think about value and growth, people always talk about the demise of value is value in a crisis. And people typically think about value in a long, short way, which has not done very well over the last many years, you could say. But if you look at a long only version, if you look at the S&P 500 value index, it actually hit a record high this week which many people might look at and say, how in the world is that possible? But the fact of the matter is that if you look at that index, it's up about 400 percent since the bottom of the bull market. Growth stocks are just up even more. And it really just brings you back to the idea that it's really, really hard to find anything that just hasn't done well in this Mm. bull market.
2: Right. And to go to your long short uh, point, it's hard to find a long short strategy that's done well.
4: Absolutely. So.
2: That's pretty good. I think I got to give it to our pal Felice Brands with the, the survey wins. on no one knowing what fixed income is. That's uh, That was pretty startling.
4: She beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Get out there and tell the people, Molly.
4: They should subscribe to the Credit Day book oh. by yours truly. Spread the word. Shameless plug in there for Molly Smith. i Oh wow, That's a good you
2: plug. You can read that's my news Bloomberg. That's, a while, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: another Bloomberg plug. We're all the same team. Yeah. <laughs> With the plug, though, Molly Smith, John Authors, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. What goes up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, John Authors, is at John Authors, and Molly Smith is at Molly Smith News. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
0: business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card it's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases that's the powerful backing of american express learn more at americanexpresscom business gold card the countdown has begun from may 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the carter economic forum powered by bloomberg join heads of state